world is moving faster than it ever has before. Both challenges and opportunities flood our days with cortisol and dopamine. As the world around us changes, the core of our humanity remains constant. Minnesota Business serves to tell stories, share ideas, and form community. Let's get to it. Part of my story uh, has always been understanding the areas of my life that I am gifted in and what I get excited about. And I found that in video, believe it or not, in high school. Mm. So it led me to Minnesota because I was planning to come to the cities. Like in a small town, Iowa, you grow up planning to leave, right? And that's just a town of 6,000 people. There's not a lot of options to build your beginning. So packed my bags and you know moved up here with 1,200 bucks, started college, started at Best Buy right away. And from there, the passion thing, I mean, I've always known who Christ was and he's always been more of a head knowledge piece of my life, not the guiding factor in how I was living, clearly in some of the way I was living. But I came up here for passion and I led to Best Buy through talent and passion. Mm. Same idea. It was like, oh, I need a job while I'm here. I'm going to do something in electronics. So I started as a cashier and I was selling, killing it, you know, replacement plans as people were trying to leave, you know, and check out. Here I am selling them these $30 replacement plans. They're like, this dude has to go back in home theater and sell big ticket stuff. So I'm like, sales, build relationships, ask probing questions. Like, I want to do this though in a way that pays me for my skill. So a guy came along that was at Best Buy Corporate doing B2B sales. And I'm like, you're making six figures right down the road, because I was at Best Buy Richfield, Best Buy Corporate, selling all the stuff in the stores to businesses. He's like, yeah, I didn't know that existed. Yeah. I want in. What were you doing differently at the cashier than everyone else? And like, how were you killing it? What was your technique? I think specifically being personable. Mm. I've always had that, like eye contact and asking the questions and being a genuine person. Today, you don't get that. You get transformer. It's basically the people today are equal to computers in terms of some of the mindset around taking orders and transactions. Computers do that. And I was taught early on that even at 16, I was selling those kind of plans then. And so it was like being a human because computers can take orders, but humans can build a relationship that leads to sales. So mm. that was always the mindset. You know, instead of like just getting out of here, checking out, it was like, stop, slow down, mm -hmm. by the way, you know? So maybe that helps. Nice, yeah, being personable, not being a computer. Nice, yeah. okay, so you go, you go B2B, you, you meet this guy, B2B salesman, he, said, he invites you over to see what he's doing, and you, that, that opens your eyes. And I hear about this opportunity, well, ironically, the supervisor I had in the home theater department was going to that same part of the Best Buy. Like, there's 5,000 people at corporate, this random guy that I met, is in a department that I'm interested in where my current boss is now going to be moving to. And I'm like, remember me when you get there. Mm. And he did. He basically said, you're hired to come work in the phones. It's going to be customer service, but you're going to make more than you are as a senior lead. You know? Mm. And I was like full-time associate. Then I was called senior and then supervisor. And he was my supervisor or manager. And I'm like, dude, I got to get out of here. Mm. And so ground floor, answering calls, helping the sales team. There's only 20 salespeople at the time. Process those orders and take customer service calls. 
But then the path was to move to an assistant. So put my time in there working for my buddy. And I'm like, I got to get over there. Like, I want to make money. I want to grow a business. I'm going to build something. And so I jumped on as an assistant. And that just meant those 20 reps, you know, there was probably each assistant had two or three reps. And so my whole job was just to support them wherever I could. They'd take vacations or, you know, looking at emails or processing orders or following up on certain things. But I learned quickly that none of these guys were picking up the phone and going to find business. Mm. And I noticed in the system, there was a lot of accounts that were really old that haven't had orders on them that had all of these sales reps names still attached to them. I'm like, why did they get to keep that account when there's been no activity? So at some point, they rolled the clock back and said, if anyone had no orders within two years, it defaulted to like a no-name account. So I started picking up the phone and calling them, building my book. And it was amazing. I never done that before, but it wasn't cold because you're Best Buy, right? Right, right. So it was awesome. And it was practice. I had confidence. But I had one lead in the pivotal point for me. And again, a couple pivotal points were learning how to sell and being you know, given the opportunity to help others learn how to sell. That was in the stores. But then the ability to cold call and build relationships and handle more complex problems was, you know, the really the B2B play. But for me, the big breakthrough was a lead came through. And one of the seasoned sales reps said, I don't want this lead. I'm like, I'll take it, of course, right? I have nothing. I'm in scraps at this point. It's uh a guy that has an online business and he wants to buy 60 water filters. I'm like, the heck? I go look him up. Mm. He's an online shop and he has all these other filters. I'm like, hmm, I can sell him the one, but he's got a lot more than that. I can sell him the one skew, 60 of them. But what about this one and this one and this one and this one? Best Buy had all of those mm. too. So I gave him some pricing on those and he's like, yeah, you're not quite there but he needed the one that we had because he was out. So at least I knew I could be a backup source. Well, we got a plan together, meaning where's my target pricing to be? You know, can I work on pricing within Best Buy? And I came back to him with more of a holistic approach. And, you know, this became a $25,000, $50,000 a month account like overnight. Wow. And I'm like, there's something here. Hmm. When something works, double down on it, right? So I'm like, He's not the only guy. So then I started Googling and looking for all the other guys doing it. I started calling all of them and I started understanding what they were paying and they were not paying as good of prices as he the, was. The filter, filter guys? Other filter companies. Mm. I ended up finding one, Water Filters Direct and Inc. 5000, fastest growing company. And I got to know this guy and he was a believer and we just hit it off. Well, he ended up becoming an interesting, really unique relationship partner. And meaning... I was selling him filters and we got to know each other. He invited me down to his new warehouse to play music. I brought my drums, I set him up and we were jamming. We went to Subway and we were just kind of kicking it. And he's like, dude, you should come down here and work for me. I'm like, this is a hundred miles one way. No, but let's talk. I mean, maybe I can do something on the side. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a good gig. It's way too far away. You know, you'd have to pay me a lot more than you'd think you would. But we left going, maybe we can still work together. I did a side hustle sales gig. So I started now, I looked at all the filters he had, many of which Best Buy didn't carry. So I started taking, I took all those filters he had access to and started selling them to the same online guys that I was already selling to. Mm. So I already had the relationships. I just brought the new product, had a better price point to these same guys. And so now I was Josh at Best Buy and Josh at waterfilters.net. And they were buying literally from a competitor, but 
it was okay because the price point in Josh was bringing it. You know, they were concerned a little bit because that business was literally selling the same filter online, mm. right? But he had better buying power and was able to sell it to him at a more lucrative price. And we were able to consolidate. So instead of buying from this supplier and that supplier and this supplier, we we're palletizing things and shipping them out. Amazing, amazing opportunity to just do something entrepreneurial and figure it out. In the meantime, I was always dabbling with eBay and Amazon and doing things like that. But I'm like, 18 months, it was probably a million bucks or so in sales. And I maybe only made 30 grand. And maybe my numbers are, are a little yeah, off yeah. on the sales, but I didn't know. I just made 25 cents a filter. That's mm. it. So that piece is where I go, pivotal point, you know, trial of 1099 sales, you know, contractor, but I'm good doing my corporate thing. Well, this is in 2008, 2009, 2010, somewhere in there, the, the market really shifted. The housing mm -hmm. market collapsed and my bonuses were going to almost nothing. Like 65% mm. of my pay was based on hitting my bonuses. And I missed one time. I'm like, I see this coming. Yeah. So I called them and we started working on, you know, we've done things together, but what about full time? What does that look like? Mm. And we put something together. So I eventually ended up joining him. And this is where the good and the bad began. Like, Amazing opportunity, driving 100 miles down there, but I would go down there on a Monday. I'd spend the night in Rochester, so drive 20 minutes after I'm done working, come back in the morning and work on Tuesday, drive home Tuesday night, see my wife, and didn't have any kids yet, go back down Wednesday, spend the night, come back Thursday, and then I had Friday from home. And I did that for like three, four, or five months. It was weird. It was hard. My wife was teaching. We didn't have kids, so we just, it was compromise, right? But it was amazing because there was only 10 employees. Mm. So that first year we went, you know, he was at 3.6 million in sales. I came on as a contractor. We hit about 5.4. But my first year full time, we went from 5.4 million to 10.3 million. And it was B2B sales. But while I was there, I go, wow. this is an e-com business. I know nothing about e-com, but I see problems and problems and problems. How do I get in and fix it? Yeah. Well, how do we get on eBay? How do we get on Amazon? Yeah. How do we do SEO and affiliate marketing? It's like, I'll do it, you know? And I got to learn basically by just putting my hand up and, and diving into it. So I'd say within a month, I'm involved in e-commerce. Never did anything with it in my life. So you go on to this Filters Direct, and when you're taking that, so what part of you was kind of mad that you did a million in sales and you got 30 grand, which is whatever, like, you know. Tiny percent. Tiny percentage. Three percent, if that. And then you go on to this guy, you, you boost his sales to 10 million through all your B2B. I'm sure there was some compensation, but when you're putting your hand up for saying, hey, I want to try this, I want to try that, are you negotiating each time that you're like, hey, like I'm taking on more responsibility and basically I'm a 10x player for, you know, and do you renegotiate every time or do you see that as a just learning and that's part of the trade? It's an amazing question because it's an answer that it can depend on who you are as an individual and who that person is as an individual. And again, back to relationship, I have never lacked confidence in describing what it is I need and what I can do. And so it's always been one of those fluid things. And so for example, to answer your question, it, you know, originally the first offer was you're way off. You need to be more like here. He's like, oh, you're way off, you know? So then we come full circle. And then he offered me a, a 60K base and an upside up to 100. And I said, I need a guaranteed 70. 
because at the time I was only at 40K base and 60, 70K was my upside. And so I'm 25 years old. I live in, in our main house with my wife. And so the compensation to start with, you know, the 25 cents, I really didn't have any negotiation. It was like, this is what I'm willing to pay, yeah. right? But when I went full time, that always invites a negotiation because we're making changes, he's investing in me. But for me, it was a no brainer because I saw the writing on the wall with what was going to happen with the market. So I knew going into it, I needed to level up my base. And if I had less upside, that would be okay, but I want to hit hundred grand. And so going to 10 million was about the right mix and it's okay because we're running on slower margins. We're running B2B, you know, and so, you know, you're talking about 10% sometimes. Hmm. So if you drive 500,000 in profit or contribution margin, it's not that crazy to get, you know, 10% of that, right, of that profit. So the math checked out because I just came from a direct sales world. And so I'm like, yeah, that's probably okay. But when I finished that year, it was like high five, sell more. I'm like, okay, but I've taken on more role. And so I, I tended to wait until the end of the year for these types of conversations. And so, you know, formally we're figuring out what everyone else is going to fall in line with in terms of year end compensation. And I was basically skipped over because in his mind, he gave me more than I, he was going to before. Mm. And I said, dude, you could at least do five grand, mm -hmm. right? Like bring me to 75. Mm -hmm. And it was a conversation that was literally like that awkward. It was like, really? Like you weren't planning on this? Well, you have your bonus plan. I said, okay, but I'm now I'm not just a sales guy. So you're a hundred percent right. But that also inspired me to push him and for him to also push back saying, all right, let's do this. Let's build a more comprehensive plan. Let's build something where we can show you unlimited upside. That's going to get you into the place where you're really excited. I'm like, boom. Yeah. So I remember that season, basically my wife and I were at dinner contemplating you know, and being excited about this next phase, which is like all in, you know, like I'm going to do this. I saw a comp plan. It was like, okay, you can make 200 and you can make 300. Well, 300 was like radical. Like it was like going from 10 million to 30 million. Like that was the, you go from 10 million to 30 million. Of course I'll pay you 300 grand. It's kind of like, okay, but I think I can leverage this. It makes sense. It's not mine. You know, I justified it. But if I look back, I probably would have pushed harder. So that next year we went to 17.3 million. One would be really excited for that kind of growth, but this was only half, just a little bit more than half of that big number, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was weird because it's a perception of what's good, what's great, and what's a big, hairy, audacious goal. He was really good at setting big targets as just what we do around here, you know, which made it hard. I had to always negotiate. So all that to say, it took two or three years to get my base up to hundred grand. And part of that was for the first time he took outside funding. So he brought in venture capital. I became a director for the first time. There were other peers around me being hired as directors. And my comp plan was, you know, at that hundred K base, I was satisfied and I also got stock options. And then I had also bonus structure. So that did not come with me asking. It came from him giving which was cool, but every year I didn't have to go back to the well too many times because I knew it was very clear how I was going to get paid. And I think that's a failure most people do and, and most large corporations can't because they're looking at the role and the job and they're looking at, you know, income bands across, like if you're a level seven or eight or a nine or right. a 10, 
there are certain jobs that qualify and there's a max in a band. When you're dealing with the CEO, you just write your own rules. And so this was, was cool because we got to be creative on how I could get paid. Mm -hmm. And that's honestly where I learned a ton about just the creativity of being able to, to be flexible, right? With those types of things, specifically comp plans. So he brought on venture capital to go acquire another business. So that year is when we went from 10 to 17. And then, then going into that year, we went to, I think, 40 million or something like that. Wow. No, maybe it wasn't quite that because yeah. it was a $20 million, $20 million business we brought on. So it was like 30-something million. Wow. It's crazy, right? Rocket growth. <laughs> but through acquisition yeah. in that case. But that was where still a steward of, of more requires more responsibility and for much is given, much is expected. And so this is the crux piece. This is the, I was so in it. This was everything. This is like, I got to prove to him. I got to prove to them. You know, I have a chance to make the real money. And when, when this company sells, those stock options are going to be worth a lot. And this will be my new beginning at some point. Mm -hmm. So I did that from 2010-ish to 2017. And probably 2015-16 is when I really was getting the itch that I needed to leave. And through that journey is when I was eating the wrong stuff. You know, I was working way too many hours, coming home late. I got, I was 40 pounds heavier than I am now oh. at my max. And, you know, I would travel. I would look for excuses to travel, you know, as opposed to now. I only travel if it's like 99% business. Mm. Before it was like, mm, Las Vegas, this event, I'll go, you know, okay. like 50%, you know, like I don't really need to go, but I'll go. Mm -hmm. That was how I used to live. And so priorities changed and, a lot of it was because I got into trouble in two circumstances. Like, you know, I cheated my wife. We, we didn't have sex. But the reality was I wasn't following. I wasn't living in the way that I knew I should. And here I am leading a small group. You know, I'm a drummer at my church serving that way. You know, I tithe and give. But I wasn't living in the way, you know, I knew I should have been. Because the world caught my attention, right? The pursuit of success caught my attention. So... That's why I call it the crux. It's like I had to learn all of the skills I have and gave me confidence to leave, to build my own brand, because that's really what happened. I learned the Amazon world. And mm. so that gave me the idea to start my own Amazon brand in 2016. And so I was like, I got to get out of here. I Telling me how much I'm going to make. You know, We saw five or six or seven different marketing leaders come and go. And here I am the whole time loyal. You know, and I mean, I get it. Other people with experience were coming in, but they weren't lasting. They couldn't last because our business was tough and it was complex. Mm. So then they finally brought in this big dog from another very large publicly traded company. I'm like, okay, I can actually learn from this dude. Mm. He didn't make it. Mm. And, and so it was official. I was like, what was the hardest part that these people weren't making? It was a complex business because we had multiple brands and we had a legacy email list, right? with a million plus email names. And you could buy the water filter online if you just went to the website for $39, our brand. But if you were to do a Google search to be competitive, we had to be at $14.99. The difference between $40 and $14.99 was nothing except for which channel they found the product on. Same product. The reason we did that is because that email legacy list they were used to buying $59 filters. Now they had a $40 option. So 
we didn't need to show them the $15 option because they didn't have any frame of reference. Wow. When they went to Google, they did, right? Because yeah. now they would see two or three or four of our competitors. So I was like, to learn that, to do that, plus we were also selling to Groupon and Amazon and eBay. And so that created more real estate, more competition in the same space that we were selling in. So it created inherently this conflict that was had to be navigated carefully with strategies, mm. measurement. And people were like, I don't get this. Not that because they couldn't pick it up, but they couldn't find the levers of growth they thought they could bring to the table. And so that led to just burnout and high expectations and you know, overpromise under deliver. Boom, I'm out of here. It, that doesn't sound unethical to me. It sounds like just next level marketing, but I could see how somebody would be like, it, and it doesn't quite sit right with me. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. Is that common in the e-commerce world, like all these different marketing techniques? And like, what have you learned about the e-commerce and black hat techniques versus like just being successful and like getting, so you got your brand off the ground. What, what kind of techniques did you employ or what, the, how'd you do it? Yeah, I think along the way, I always knew that from an integrity and ethical standpoint, I wanted to be as close as I could to write, you know, and that meant being right to win is the right way. And along the way, there are things like I described. And from an ethical standpoint, I look at that and I go, that's good marketing. That's good pricing strategy. That's capitalism. Because the entire goal was to maximize the margin, right? And if the customer was getting the win, and the win would be instead of paying 59, we brought them to a page that showed them the 59 versus the 39. It was a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. Now, they absolutely could have Googled it and could have found it for cheaper, right? And so there is that. I don't think that's very common, but I would say it is very common to say, I grew up meaning in the era of Best Buy having stores and then the dot-com having to figure out how to deal with the difference in pricing. And mm -hmm. so it wasn't that uncommon to have different channels and different pricing, but Amazon, you know, pretty much changed that. It's one price and it's very dynamic. It changes all the time. And mm. basically it, it came down to the world adjusting to everyday low price. Mm. So that was a strategy. Now on the flip side, this is the tactic I employed because of this. When you're served up, you know, the GE filter you always buy at 59, the same one you get at Home Depot. But when you're looking at a side-by-side -side comparison, does that remind you of a, a retail store when you're going to buy, let's just say, ibuprofen, the brand Advil? Mm. Right next to Advil is what? Well, the generic version or Tylenol or whatever. Yeah. So you got ibuprofen yeah. from the Advil brand next to it is up and up at Target, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. what I learned specifically is that's what we were doing with our tier one brand next to the GE brand. Mm. And I learned that the lower cost alternative, even though it was 20 bucks less in revenue, our cost of goods was like seven, eight bucks versus 40. So yeah, we could give up the 20 to gain another, you know, 10 bucks on top of that margin. So we were making more margin dollars. And so I learned that trick and that was all about sourcing the right quality of product. That's the biggest takeaway there because if you can source at the right cost that has the right quality, Amazon specifically created that ecosystem of what's the price point and what is the customer feedback loop, right? It's reviews. So when you're searching mm -hmm. and you're optimized for the right term, you're going to land in the right spot if you have 4.5 reviews and you know, you're a good price point. And so I created a brand 
I said, if I could do this with water filters, I can do this with anything. Mm -hmm. So that's how the brand Essential Values came. That's the brand that I launched in 2016. And my first product was a Keurig descaling solution. Same idea. You could buy a Keurig descaling solution, 14 ounces for $14.99, one time, one use. I came up with a product. It was two uses for $10.99. Mm-hmm. But it was only eight ounce liquid because it was concentrate. And so the difference between 14 ounce and eight ounce in weight was, you know, it's close to six ounces in weight, six and a half or something. It's, you know, volume weight versus weight weight isn't the same. But mm-hmm. the point in the weight was the shipping costs were like a dollar sixty cheaper. Mm-hmm. So I was selling it for four dollars less, but my costs were way lower and I was saving money on the freight. And so selling thousands and thousands of these. And the first batch was literally me taking a five-gallon jug. I went to Home Depot, got a bunch of contraptions to fill up 80 different bottles, maybe 70, I forget, 70 or 80. And I had my labels I ordered from Uprinting with my design and Mm. filled them up. And then I put the labels on them, put them in a box and shipped them to Amazon. And we sold out, you know, in the first like couple of days. I'm like, wow, what? You know, I couldn't believe it. So I bought five five five-gallon jugs and... The rest was history from there because we simply, I was doing that in my garage. And we had already, my partner and I had already bought a separate business. So we had a warehouse and a small team. And so I was like, okay, I did this in my garage. This works. Let's bring those five here and let's have an employee do that now. And I was still working full time trying to figure all this stuff out, right? So I was able to do that for about a year plus. And about six months in, this thing was cooking. And the model was the same, like not just in the scaler, but we did it in humidifiers. So mm. there was a solution called humidor solution for cigar smokers, right? Mm. You put a humidor that brings the RH levels to the right level so your stogies don't dry out. Mm. Who would have thought, right? And there was no national brand, but there was the brand that you would buy at any store. And so they didn't want to lower their price because all of the stores, the tobacco stores that carried it would have a problem. So we were able to come in and sell it at whatever we want mm. to be the online guy. Sold tons of those. And actually, that was my brother's first product. So that's how I got him to come join us. This whole idea I briefly shared to you about like finding opportunities, I showed him this opportunity and said, I will support you in launching this product, but here's how you find the product. And when you find it, let's work together because I know liquids. We have a manufacturer that does liquids. Let's bring that to him and we'll get it done. And so, I mean, the whole model of opportunities and partnering with the right people, I practiced it with my brother. And then eventually he came on full time. And so we scaled from, at that point, $3 million, and he helped us to go to $10 million in sales wow. in about five years. So that brings me to a question about finding problems and finding ideas that are worth investing in and pursuing. So the story about the descaling liquid mm-hmm. for a Keurig, where did that, do you have a Keurig, and was that just a personal problem, or how did you come to that as your first product? Product identification has to be a process when you want to scale it. But in the beginning, it was very much, you know, guerrilla warfare, you know, trial and error, find it, just being curious. Meaning I had a door handle that broke on my sliding door. And I went on Amazon because I found out I just need this little latch thing. And this little latch thing was like $13.99 or 14 bucks for this little piece of metal. I'm like, it's kind of strange. There's only one guy selling it. And I, there was tools that were able to tell you how many of those he was selling. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Mm. So Alibaba was available and I went and found it pretty quickly, you know, and I saw that the cost was like a dollar fifty 
plus shipping might've got me to two, two fifty or something, maybe, maybe two bucks total. And I was able to sell it for less and make a ton of money. Now, again, ton is relative to how many units you're selling, how much advertising you're spending. Like there's a lot of factors, mm. but the problem was me just trying to replace something in my home as a homeowner. The scaling solution was similar because $14.99 at Target, it's like, huh. But because that was such a national brand, the idea brought me back to filters where people are looking for this name brand thing. They know how to search it. So I use that to reverse out when I search it, who shows up. Mm-hmm. And if only a few people show up, either two things are happening. It's a very small market because no one's caught wind of it yet. Or, you know, someone's just killing it and they're up there all alone. And that was the case. There was like one or two other guys doing it. And so I'm like, why? Well, it was a, a citric acid that fell in the bucket of an irritant. So it was technically called hazmat, right? Mm. So it's like, oh, it's in the bucket of hazardous goods. Stay away. So I'm like, bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's figure out how to do that, you know? But that's exactly how we did. So that's one bucket of problem solving. The other one that would be just using tools. There are a lot of tools that blew up that allow you to really filter and sort by those types of criteria to find the right product based on, you know, the type of category it was in, the price points, how many units were selling. So that was a more of a scientific method, but a lot of ways because that data was available. That data had not been available. It was guessing. Mm. So using data to support your thesis, the thesis is first, is there a gap? You know, and so you'd be looking at a lot of gaps, but when you use data to systematize that, it's like, oh, we can do this in a lot of different categories. And that's why the brand was called Essential Values, very generic and can be done in, you know, any category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. That's smart, yeah. <laughs> it's a great name, Essential Values. I mean, there's a few brands like that, right? Like Everyday Essentials, I think is Cub Foods. Right, right. You know, like, yep. okay, a little generic. I think I've heard of that. People are like, and I'm like, no, it's probably this one. It's probably yeah, Cub yeah. Foods. So like, oh, okay, hey, right. Like, so what was it like selling that uh, company? Was it, because I've heard entrepreneurs say that it's like giving away their baby. Some people have really no emotional reaction to when they, they make the sale and the money hits the account. Some people say it's great, I don't know. But like, one, how did you find a seller? Because everyone always talks about building and then to sell. Like, was that a hard thing to find a seller or was that pretty easy? Buyer, I mean. Buyer, yeah. No, I mean, yes and no. We were fortunate enough that we had another business that we had acquired. And that business we acquired really took off at COVID. We took it because it was distressed and we spent some time and effort, you know, removing a lot of overhead and bringing it into our business model and our building and using our strategies to reduce, you know, pain and agency, reduce pain a 3PL. And so we grew that in two years to a pretty good amount where we're like, with COVID, we should probably consider selling this now because to do the same sales next year would be pretty tough. Mm. And because of that, the conversations we had with buyers were only because we chose to hire a broker. Mm. So we hired a broker for that business because what we wanted was the largest pool we could find of buyers because it was a specialty niche e-com business. So through that journey, I heard of this group called Aggregators. It was a wild, wild season of businesses that raised $15 billion over the course of like these two years. And they went and bought a bunch of Amazon brands to consolidate Mm. them together. Mm. And so they were easy to find. I could Google and literally find every aggregator. So I called 30 of them and literally cold called them. And so I ended up getting featured in a Business Insider article about this through a connection I made. And I ended up getting like, I don't know, 
13 very interested and we got six offers. Wow. And so we went from selling one to selling two businesses in the period of, we ended up closing one in March, uh, like 27th, one on April 1st. Wow. And, they, and the one started about a month before the other one. So for us, it was like, what? These two businesses, I guess we're selling them both. So what do you do after you sell? Are you, is it kind of a hole or is it celebratory or how are you feeling when that goes through? Yeah, I remember being pretty, it being surreal. Like it's going to happen. It's probably going to happen. Not sure if it's going to happen. It's probably going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. You know, not really planning to sell. We didn't have our hopes up. We basically had one that we were thinking we could sell led to two that we end up selling within a couple of days. And we're like, dang, like just high five. It was literally that, but we still had a third business together. Mm. And so part of us were like, okay, this isn't one of those things where you sell and sail off in the sunset. We just kept what we were doing because the two buyers that we had contracted back to us to continue managing the brand. Wow. And so what? we got paid and then we got paid to keep it going. And one we still have to this day, the other one moved on, but that turned into a new business model that turned into us managing other brands. Mm. So now we were able to take, you know, because we had already been doing that. The third business already existed. It was one that Ryan and I earlier bought. It was just promotional products. So like, you know, oh, putting cool. your logo on stuff, yeah. but it was for enterprise brands. And the reason we could do this model and service clients is because we had a warehouse, we had inventory, we had a system, we had people, we knew how to grow, we knew how to manage websites, customer service, yada, yada, yada. And we're like, people are still showing up at the warehouse every day. We still have a business here and let's grow it. That was the plan, but I disappeared and uh, I disappeared going, I need to figure out what's next. And so my brother, who I brought up from Iowa and helped kind of grow this business, he participated in some of the exit but we started with another brand. We launched another brand while we were going after new clients. So what happened was my brother was stuck managing the previous businesses who are now our clients, managing a new brand we just started, and then I was going hunting for new business. And so I started lobbing them over the fence. Hmm. While we were trying to figure out who are we really, like what's that name, what's that website look like, how do we tell that story? Well, we proved we can sell, we proved we can do this, so let's ramp it up. And so that was, 21, 22, and 21, I started writing the book. And it was about my process and journey of selling this business. Mm. It was fun. I hired a ghostwriter and it was like telling the story. And so didn't make any money and it was mm. the wrong timing. To <laughs> The book was literally about how to sell your own business. Wow. The world drastically changed with his aggregators. And let's just say the interest in selling has changed given the cost of capital today. Mm. So that was great. I mean, it was it was a fun experience, but it wasn't going to go anywhere. And so we we started round two of building the next business. And my brother just hit his max. Like he literally was doing all of this stuff. I stopped going to the office. I was lobbing things over to him, and he just he snapped. He literally quit over a leadership team call, and that's what rocked me. And so that was the beginning of this year. Mm -hmm. So that brings us kind of full circle to, you know, figuring out what's next. This was the last thing kind of hanging there in terms of like those businesses, that legacy, that was all in the Bright Ventures world. And so before I kind of go into the current, after the sale, we're like, okay, this is interesting. Like have this sum of money and seeing it in the bank, like it's not cash cash, right? It's dollars in the bank and it's just numbers mm -hmm. with commas. And it's only as good as, you know, 
whatever you choose to use it for, like it's currency, right? And well, what is currency? When you look at that kind of money and you go, it's sitting in a bank account making no money. Like, well, I need to do something with it. It needs to be working. So for the first time you go from income living to more than enough dollars to just pay yourself. And like mindset overnight was like, I don't need income because I just take it from the bank. Like, okay, that'll pay my bills. But what if that money was working for me? And so, you know, I'm like, I'm going to invest and I'm going to buy and do these different things. And uh, rather than hiring, you know, a professional financial planner, I was doing Josh Entrepreneur Monopoly money. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned a few lessons. One, lost a hundred grand in an investment deal. It was an e-com business. My gut said no. Mm. What is a Christian dude and interesting model? I'm like, okay. I bought solar for three of my properties. They took my money and ran because they ran out of business. I lost a hundred grand on that. Oh. You know, not that wasn't a business deal, but you know, you start to realize the decisions you make, you know, have consequences, positive or negative. In some cases, the negative ones, they they hurt. And so I had never had any big hurts like that. And so it was like, you know, I'm a steward. Like mm. I'm responsible for this. And putting it in the checking account is literally like the peril of the talents of the guy that got one talent. He, it's literally like burying it in the ground. You could have put it in the bank and got interest. Well, not in the bank in 2022. Right, right. Not in 2021. Like it's interest is 0.001%. Right? <laughs> right now it's worth something. But I say all that to say it was the first time my mindset went from income living to managing what's coming in and what's going out to balance sheet optimization, meaning this cash should be in a vehicle. I need just enough to pay for the things I need now. Well, for how long? So you think about that rule of thumb, you know, if there's enough, if there's no money coming in, you know, you're like, well, I need to make sure that either this can last or that it's working to produce enough income. So the balance never shrinks. And, and so you start thinking like that. And so what if I move it from the checking account? So if you're looking at your net worth, Literally, it's going from this bank account, which is where you see the commas and zeros, to this account, which might be in real estate. So mm. today, it's moved to some real estate and some businesses and some other things, but it hasn't changed my net worth unless those things are growing. Mm -hmm. So if I was just figuring out like how my portfolio is what? I need to have some things that are long-term, you know, that are going to be home runs potentially. I have some things that are going to be base hits that are very simple, that are more liquid, that I can take and pull from as I need. Mm -hmm. But I need some things that are going to be just straight passive. Mm -hmm. And so we came up with a business, and I had done this in, in the past, uh, hard money lending. Mm -hmm. So taking my money and becoming the bank. And so I brought my partner in, and I found two other Christian dudes I knew, and they were doing flipping. So I was a lender for them. And we're like, dude, 0% down, that's an unheard of model. So we put together a new team and launched a business. And as of today, it, it's great. It, it's I show up on Thursdays for one hour phone calls. Mm. That's my role now. Wow. Like, but it took getting it going, declaring the vision, building a product, and putting a team together to scale it. And so, you know, thinking about that journey, I just knew that I needed to think about all the opportunities that I see and whether it's hard money lending or e-com or this, that, or the other thing, problems to solve from a startup standpoint or an acquisition that comes my way. My role is not to do all of those things, uh, you know, but to ensure that those things end up having a home 
that truly does help someone or provides a value to someone that someone's willing to pay for it, which is, you know, the role of someone when you, when you look at all these assets, they're not just to collect us. They need to be working. So it really makes you think about all the things you have and how you can do what's best for it. So it's moving forward. And, you know, that led us to 2023 thinking about, I got another round in me. Like, what am mm. I really passionate about? Mm. What are my giftings? Like, God, what are you calling me to be? And so, you know, I'm like, man, I'm on fire for the Lord. Like my faith is grown and like ministry. Like I want to tell the world about this transformation journey because of my marriage that was on the rocks and, you know, bringing it back together, going to counseling for the first time, you know, after my wife had refused and not willing to take ownership, she jumped in and now started revealing things in her own life that she needed to work on. And our marriage has never been tighter. Mm. It's an amazing, amazing experience. And so 2023, we're going, I'm going, Lord, what do you have for me? And so my brother quit in January. I'm going, shoot, if he quits, I'm not going to be able to do any of this new, new stuff. I'm going to have to backfill his job, find a replacement. I'm going to, this is going to be backwards. Well, little did I know that my partner, Ryan, came alongside me and came alongside my brother and said, we have a good working relationship. What if I work with Alex, your brother, and you can kind of go do your thing as you've been planning on. And so it was just amazing timing. And so I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So he came back and he's been working with that ever since. And I'm like, okay, now what? Now what really, you know? So in the vein of assets, I'm like, well, what if I bought and hold assets that I could, you know, passively receive income, but moderately spend effort in to grow? And so I bought a, a mental health blog and I love the mental health. You know, personally, I have children that are dealing with some things myself in, in terms of anger and the counseling and some of the other just challenges of life. I'm really passionate about the brain. And so I'm like, this is a cool model. It's an affiliate model driving traffic to mm -hmm. online counseling. I can scale this through SEO. I was thinking I was going to go buy a bunch of those and that was going to be the model. I did that first one and I kept looking for others. And I'm like, yeah, this is going to be great. Other things popped up. I did some seed investing. Well, this landscaping guy who had done two or three projects for my property here and at the lake, spring was coming and he called me. He's like, dude, I need a, a skid steer. I remember telling him, stop renting it from this other guy. Let me buy one and rent it to you because I'm mm -hmm. thinking I can park my money in an asset mm -hmm. and this asset will be income producing. In theory, yes, but practically no. <laughs> I just keep writing checks to yeah. keep the thing going. But I ended up getting into a relationship with him where I bought a bunch of equipment, leased it back to him, and then I helped him grow his business, wow. turn on the lead funnel. You know, he comes here once a week, we collaborate. It's been interesting. So I'm thinking, you know, all these different people have these vision and mission and opportunities in front of them, but they're not always equipped. So I came alongside him. I'm like, I love doing this stuff. Like, mm -hmm. but how do I do this at scale? And so I just was scratching an itch, but it was really the journey for me to just kind of stop, slow down and do what I love for a little bit. Well, I got a, a phone call at some point in January saying that you're supposed to be speaking in 2025. Okay. So January 23, two years from now, I was supposed to be speaking. And that's just because it's once a quarter and mm. he planned it five years out with 20 people or whatever. <laughs> but he's like, but I need you in, in April. I'm like three months. I got plenty of time. Perfect. Well, I'm like, Lord, what do you want me to say? Like, so I, I just kind of began taking notes and brainstorming and I was sure it was time to tell my story. A little bit, but I didn't know my, right, quite what my story was. As I've shared it with you, it's been a lot more clear. But at the time, I'm like, hmm. So, you know, 
walking in faith, kind of being intentional about what I'm doing. I hire an accountability coach. I, I go crazy on like, I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to get really focused, you know, quit nicotine. I was snoozing at the time. And like, I just went through my whole life and I was like, I want to become more disciplined. I want to create habits. And I got really crazy into like setting up my week for success, mm -hmm. you know, building task management stuff mm -hmm. and automation. And I'm like, this is great becoming the best version of myself. You know, here I am 39 years old and, and the Lord was leading me down these paths to reconcile relationships. I started counseling with my mom at 39. She's 68 and amazing because we had a relationship that was fairly, fairly tarnished. Mm. I mean, my entire life. Mm. My mom wanted me to go to counseling at the age of seven, seven, eight years old. Mm. I wouldn't go. Mm. And then I went to my former employer who I'd been holding on to resentment. And, you know, in that case, I was like, dude, I've been harboring these feelings towards you. I'm sorry. Like, I'm not sure why, but let me just tell you what's happened in this last year and, and apologize. And so, so I went through the season of just sanctification, the crap out of my love, out of my body of, of the areas of my life that Lord, I didn't give control of that he was now taking control of. It was amazing. And so fast forward really quickly to March, we drive to Brandon Lake to see him in Kansas city. Mm. And my wife and I are having a great time driving there, you know, getting to know each other again, like a, a mini long weekend date. And she begins telling me some things, sharing some things with me she planned to never share with anyone. I was like, wow, like, this is wild. Well, at the concert, we're there and it's time, you know, praise and worship's over. There's kind of a break in the session and the guy comes out. He's like, who all needs, you know, prayer? I believe that there's someone here tonight that could use healing in their hearing, in their ears. So my wife has been struggling with hearing. So she raised her hand and some people kind of came around her and started praying for her. There was a number of other people that had their hands up as well. And... After everyone disbanded, one lady kind of leaned into her and mentioned something, a very prophetic word around the topic she started to broach with me on the car ride up. And it spoke to her heart. And I'm like, what the heck's going on here? You know, so concert's over, we go eat. And she's like, you don't believe what happened. I'm like, what? She leans over, she hands me this card and it's just a business card. It just said her name. And it says like, here's four local churches you could plug into. And here's a Bible reading plan. It's like, oh, that's neat. And like, aha moment around this nonprofit idea had been kicking around. That like popped up. But then more specifically, she's like, no, 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 not the card. Like what she said to me was this. And it basically her light bulb turned on her head that what she'd been holding on to, she didn't need to hold on to. And she needed to let it go. And that God had already restored her from that. And that the chains were holding there were not there, did not need to be there. And, and he removed that burden from her and moved it from the debt bucket to the asset bucket. Basically, you know, in a matter of moments, this barrier between her and herself was gone. This, this thing that happened to her and not that it was gone, but it was no longer holding her. And we just, on the way back, like I had clarity in our marriage, clarity, you know, for the future, you know, just, it was a really magical weekend. I mean, I was bawling. This is how much I felt like probably eight times just weeping. And she's like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, <laughs> and she's like, do we need to pull over? I'm like, no, these are just tears of joy. And, and I just began, or was a speaking to me about, you know, the journey I've been on and the example that I can be to others by sharing my story of, mm. you know, going after success and, you know, failing and then restoring my marriage and putting in the work. And 
you know, he said, you can use this for good. And, and that's what we're going to do here. So I came back pumped up, ready to go to write my talk in wow. April. Wow. And so I literally, because of the circumstances I was in, I put everything aside and I was able to spend three weeks, four weeks, just grinding on that talk. Not because it was the end all be all. In fact, the Lord made it very clear to me that this was just the beginning. But some of the things that I was weeping over as we were driving home in that trip were he was revealing to me some of the, the vulnerabilities that I'm able to share that, that would relate to men. But more specifically, when you do that and when you take steps in faith, the enemy's coming. Mm -hmm. And so it was reminded that, you know, Tim Tebow popped in my head about, you know, him being a professional as he is and good looking has still faced a lot of adversity for his faith. And so I was reminded of that. And I was reminded of the enemy. I was reminded that I have a family to protect, but you know, he's calling me to big things. And I'm like, just weeping. Cause as I'm thinking through this and the doors that have opened and the circumstances that were aligning, I'm like, holy cow, just like, wow. So I come back raring to go, write this story, show up April 20th, give the talk. It was fine. You know, I'll give it a B minus, but the line successfully unsuccessful came out of that. That's it. We're going to tell my story. We're going to bring in business dudes, let them share their story of struggles, but how they're navigating life as a husband, father, and business leader and killing it all areas because they're doing it the right way. And so how do we get that story out there? Well, that led to, how am I going to monetize this? Because now I'm just writing checks to get this thing off the ground. <laughs> it's like, duh, like, oh, I should probably think about that. So full circle, the, the coaching opportunity came about because I'm like, these men, part of my freedom came from the liberation of being able to meet with men and be real, like to share my struggles, to bring my insight into their challenges as well. And so this group of guys, you know, I've been going through with four years every month and like the world needs more of this period. Mm -hmm. And so door open there, you know, and, and so much so that it was like, he flew out here. It was like, let's consider a partnership. I'm like, what? I just wanted to become a coach, but I think you're right. We should do something more. So like these doors, Who flew out? Uh, the, the guy that just radical in the sense that the Christian business men's connection, CBMC that I've been a part of before I joined that four or five years ago, this group called truth at work reached out to me and they wanted to start a Minneapolis chapter. And so that would be building, finding members of a team to form a team of 10. That would be like a cohort. It would be like CBMC. And I hadn't heard of that yet, but I was intrigued by it. And I went as far as going to the president and discussing with him becoming the Minneapolis chapter. Well, I was like, I should really consider this, but the doors are open. I don't, I'm not clear that this is the path that God has for me right now. I wasn't. And so a guy in my small group, Aaron Hoffer. It's like, dude, my dad is involved in a local Christian business group. Talk to him. So I go and sit down with Don Hoffer. He was leading the mm -hmm. CBMC area. And it was very clear to me. It was like the, the Holy Spirit hit me over the head. It was like with a very specific metaphor of it's time for you to learn not to lead and jump in a group. You know, don't do this thing. Don't get distracted. Go down this path. And so that's really what kickstarted a lot of the sanctification in nice. my life. And so the founder of that organization, eventually Truth at Work moved on to start Kingdom Factor. So that's this platform now that it's using the same operating system model to gather, to pray, to solve problems and to have accountability. 
And so he launched a version of that that I could use as a tool in my tool belt to go digital with the membership group, which was the monetization of the podcast. That would be the hope, right? Nice. So full circle, I go back to them and I never met the founder. I only met his partner, his sidekick. And so five years later, we connect back up. I think we need to talk about this coaching program. That's when he said, I need to come to you or you need to come to me. So when he came to Minnesota, he stayed here at this house. And we were talking about the vision around the podcast. We're talking about the vision of Kingdom Factor and how men need this in their life to bring them together to go through life and sharpen each other. And their model is focused on coaches. My model would be focused on members. And so this is where he's like, we should partner up. I'm like, yes, because at some point, I need more coaches to support the members and I know how to do that. And by the way, the coaching model is pretty interesting and I could probably help there. And so that was kind of the partnership idea. Well, I ended up going back out there after signing up for being a coach to talk through more details. And it's just like that path is moving forward as we speak. And it's about how is God working through this and and being aware that there's some timing at work and there's some deliverables that have to happen. But it comes down to this entire movement that I see it's happening. And, mm. and what I'm excited to talk about with Mick, who's up next, is really how God is bringing men together that have the same desire to grow, the body to come together, to do things together more than we could on our own. And I'm so excited because I got these groups of different guys of all shapes and sizes, different backgrounds, different faith journeys, different stories, different successes, and different struggles, right? leveraging those, I feel like is my God-given ability to take these opportunities and plug holes into them. So, you know, building a brand around what does it mean like to follow Christ in the workplace and to be a good father and husband and have your priorities in order is a good message, I think, for all believers. And that's kind of a missing gap that I've seen. So spreading the word through podcasts and social using video, bringing them into this world of membership and, and connection and collaboration to now the third leg of the stool is how do we leverage those gifts of that group to bring them in a place where we can do more together so this is that private equity meets franchise meets incubator model that i've been talking about and so that's the path now and so the 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 opportunity around crm and connecting people and following up with our people and you know our sphere of 50 that are in our ministry of influence right in the marketplace how do we continue to engage them? What are the next steps with them? And so I'm excited to see how that unfolds. But yeah. Okay, last there. question. Yeah. I, I like asking this one to just wrap things up. Is uh, Based on everything, this journey that you've taken over the last, say, 20, 30 years, what's one thing that you want to leave the audience with as far as lesson, word of wisdom, and ask? Just a parting word. I think bottom line is it's hard for the Holy Spirit to work with nothing you haven't given him. So if you submit and make it a practice to lean into him and to follow him and to guide him and to listen to his voice, you begin to understand that his ways are greater than your ways and his idea of success is far bigger than you ever imagined. And by being patient and waiting on him, when those doors open, these are the doors that we go through. And when we go through those doors, the blessings can follow. And if we continue to be good stewards of those blessings and use them to point them back to him, he'll continue. He'll continue. He'll continue. Because if you've been given five talents, much is expected. If you've been given four talents, much is expected. But it's easy 
to bury them in the ground and do nothing, right? And so the compelling message here is think about each day where the Lord has you now, but not about the person you were yesterday or the person you're trying to be, but the person you will be when you finally reach that potential, which is when? When we're dead and buried in the ground, right? So here we go. Here's to death. <laughs> Love it. Man, that's, that's a great way to end it. I don't know about that. No, no, no. That that last word, though, that's that's powerful. Cool, yeah, man. It's a lot easier to bury it. So, man, you thank go. you, Josh. Appreciate thank you. you.